people first organizations will win in the future of work. Your only real asset is your people. We, we all, all want, want purpose-driven work. work. HR-led organization is I'm sorry, but leaders don't lead empty desks and empty shop floors. Welcome to the People Strategy Leaders Show. I'm your host, Sri Chalapa, founder and president of Engagedly, and a serial entrepreneur in technology, films, and music. This is where we talk to people leaders, business strategists, and organizational savants about leading in the time of change. What is working, what is not working, and more importantly, what we should be thinking about. Stick around to the end of the show. We will reveal how you can be our next guest. And now, let's engage. Hello, this is Sri Chalapa again with People Strategy Leaders Podcast. And today I am honored to have Michael Graber, who's a founder and managing partner of Epic Pivot, a human-centered firm that specializes in purposeful transformation and innovation. Michael has worked with nearly 300 clients, including Clariton, Jack Nicholas, Fruit of the Loom, etc. Michael is also a published author, poet, and an active musician. Well, welcome to the show, Michael. It's an honor to have you and, and really excited to talk about how all your uh, creative and business aspects interweave together. Thank you, Sri. I'm honored to be here with you and I'm so grateful for your platform and all the good work you're doing in the world. Uh, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so one thing that, you know, uh, we, we were uh, chatting earlier and one thing that I think uh, we are seeing a lot more with this uh, new world of work with which I think you mentioned also is this uh, human to human era of business. Can you talk a little bit about what do you really mean by that? And what does it actually look like? Right. It's quite a loaded phrase. And so it's going to take me a little while to explain. But we see what, what's happening right now with what you're saying, the new way of work and um, many of the aspects uh, that are changing strategic HR and being more people centered as a long continuum of how we look at labor. So if you go back in economics, you know, before the industrial revolution, it was bad. You know, we, we had slaves, you had different systems to keep people in place than even the feudal system before that. And we had the rise of the middle class. And then so much of how we think about work in the white collar world, especially, comes from the template of the MBA school and the industrial revolution. So the industrial revolution, if you want you begin to unpack it, you see that there was Robert Winslow Taylor, who was the first consultant who took out the artisan and craftspeople and wanted to look at people like cogs in a machine that were very replaceable, right? And anyone who had an idiosyncratic fingerprint or were psychological instead of logical um, was kicked out of these organizations. So the organizations became very monolithic. They became... Um, where you would have to leave your best parts of yourself and your different parts of your psychology away from work. You almost had to put on a mask to go to work, right? Um, and then that was codified in MBA schools around the world because they thought that was the absolute truth, the way that business was run. And so every way that we think about business from human resources, looking at people as resources instead of people as as these great enablers and catalysts um, to um, how we think about marketing. Even marketing is an archery term, literally to hit the mark, right? You either hit the mark. And so then you get into business to consumer and business to business, which are very objectifying terms. I have this target who is a consumer and I'm trying to meet an objective with this target. 
But what we see is that people want to be heard as we keep hearing. People want to be felt. People want to be understood. And really conscious emerging people leaders understand this, the old world of business to business, of business to consumer, of where the purpose of a business is just to extract a profit at any price, even if it doesn't serve the people that work there or the people who live in the community because of so many externalities, is a dying model. So what we're seeing is this rebirth of what we're calling human to human. And the human human era means that work can be refreshed, can be reframed to be where people, uh, where at places where human flourishment is possible, places where people can go and explore with a growth mindset without consequences. Smart companies have always known this, right? And they understand that. And a lot of what we call conscious capitalism companies understand with the, their th triple bottom line, people, planet, and profit, understand that as well. But we're seeing that that's going to be the, the most competitive edge, but also how business is done in the emerging future. Yeah, and I think the, that's the whole movement towards ESG as well, and yes, uh, yes. and having having a very uh, looking at shareholders, not only shareholders as your stakeholders, but your employees are your stakeholders. The society is a stakeholder. The environment is a stakeholder. That's right. Uh, and and your neighbors are your stakeholders too. So looking at it holistically, it really definitely has has uh, taken hold in a lot of these organizations out there. Um, and I actually believe that it is actually good for business in the long run. You know? yeah, well, there's a great study by Raj Sisodia called Firms of Endearment. And he did a 10-year study of uh, these values-based firms they're talking about. It's really stakeholder capitalism in action. And all of the benchmarks who already practice that do somewhere between 8x and 13x better than their profit only competitors. So you have Patagonia compared to Columbia, right? Or you have Ben and Jerry's compared to Haagen-Dazs. That sort of, those sorts of benchmarks are well studied and well codified. They've been working forever. And I don't understand why everyone hasn't moved to that template because A, you leave a, leave a positive legacy and you have a positive wake as a company. It's net positive, but then, uh, B, you also do well by doing good, right? Yeah. You're honoring your people and doing well. Yeah. I mean, you can also even translate that because uh, you look at the CEO. I was reading the study that this, whenever a woman became a CEO, their share prices went up in the long run compared to their other cohorts where, they, they were, where that was not the case. Uh, and the profitability went up as well. Just that one little, one little variable. Right. So if you are a smart stock investor, every time a, a, a company elected a CEO as a woman, you are better off shorting the S&P and buying that and, lo and going long and doing a long short play uh, against that company, you know? And that's, that's, that's very right. interesting when you look at, look at how data actually proves that some of these behaviors, uh, which, which are very much uh, taking this multi-stakeholder approach and right. are, are actually a lot more, lot more profitable. Very true. So, yeah. So with that, I'll just tell you a little bit of what how we backed into this. So we've been doing innovation for about 15 years with many, many clients, and it's a human centered process. So if you understand the market, you're not just making stuff to make money, but you you go and hang out with the people for whom you're creating products, services, experiences, and you help them articulate their unarticulated wants, needs and desires. You make something that's really meaningful to them. 
And so what's interesting to us is that we see these corporate innovation departments doing all this human-centered work, starting with empathy. And then what comes after empathy is usually compassion, you know, and trying, we, we see all these people suffering. How can we take what we do and alleviate the suffering and make the world a better place for everybody, right? I'll give you one quick example. We were working with a well-renowned chemist from Merck Consumer Care. And this person was in the, twi- in the sunset of his career. He's about 61 at the time. And I took him into the homes one day of three eczema sufferers. They were thinking about an eczema platform and did a bunch of in-depth ethnographies, people-centered work, right? And um, they were saying that, A, this is a living hell. B, nobody understands what it's like to be in my skin. Then taking us to their bathrooms and showing us these half gallons of Clorox bleach that they would put in their bathtub. So we went back to the car after the third interview. He was crying. This is the man that invented the SPF spectrum for copper tone, right? He's well-renowned chemist. And he said, I feel like I've wasted my whole career. It was always about the formulation, about the chemistry before. But now it's about solving the, the, the pain and suffering for people like Megan, with whom we just spoke. Right? And we see that the more you do that kind of human-centered work, the more individuals start to change and this this people-centered revolution happens one person at a time until it tips over into the whole organization. So how are you, like, so you're working obviously with a lot of different organizations and leadership. So when do you typically get called in to help with these organizations? Right. So we have several practices. We still do our innovation and insights work, right, which are all people-centered, qualitative, et cetera. Um, But then we get called in often most often with our purposeful transformation work, once they've had a transformation that has failed and they can't discern why, or if they're hemorrhaging talent and they don't understand why, or if people just don't understand the culture, if the culture becomes too heavy, too politicized, and they need to set it right. So those are the three times we get called in. Um, And then we came up with our framework for purposeful transformation after we got called in by Hilton Hotels and the, the world's largest children's research hospital charity, right? I can't name them, but, um, and they had some failed transformations and we had to reverse engineer why it failed. And these were supposedly digital transformations. And uh, you can guess what they left out, the people and mm-hmm. the culture aspects of it. They thought that the big machines were gonna fix everything and they were just gonna be able to do a typical change management program. And it didn't take, you know, it was a multi, both cases, multi, multi million dollar failure. And it just left their people more befuddled than ever. And we, you know, our, our whole ethos is start with the people, listen to the people, they'll guide you, honor them, respect them. Yeah. So what do you typically find is a common theme when these transformations fail among, among these, not just these organizations, but in general, from your research and your practice? Typically, they're top down and the top is disembodied from the rest of the corpus, if you will. It's like a disembodied brain that doesn't know how the body works. Right. If you look at the the word corpus, meaning body, of course. Um, And um, they felt like it was a good idea because other leading organizations do it, but they didn't understand the impact of their own organization at all. Um, And so what we recommend is actually understanding and helping set the objectives of the C-suite and then aligning that to a purpose 
But then flipping the script and starting bottom up and doing all the listening exercises and hearing about what changes are actually needed, what happens from the rest of the organization, doing ethnographies inside the companies. And I can tell you that the best benefit is alignment, but the other is that everybody feels heard and respected by their organization. And so they're willing to make the change. They have the change readiness that just a top-down initiative doesn't. People are initiative weary, right? We've all gone through lots of changes. They don't wanna just jump on something without feeling like they've had a voice or have a stake in it. So looking at your employees as stakeholders, becomes really key and honoring them in a way that they're part of the design of the program. They can also help identify barriers more so than a disembodied C-suite. Yeah, and one thing that I've also read some, you know, and I I know this from my own personal experiences, the answers are always there. You just gotta go and ask them. Yes, and they love being asked. (laughs) Yeah, that's, and they resent when they're not asked. It's that simple. Yeah, Yeah. because when you hear about oh, my company's not doing well, or my department is not doing well, or my co- customers are not happy, or are we getting our ass kicked by our competitors? Typically, the answers are there in the, in the organization you're in. You just haven't asked them in the right way, and you're not giving them enough uh, you know, psychological safety, if you will, where they can speak up and say, hey, That's what you're doing is actually wrong because I, the, I'm the one talking to the customers. I know exactly what the problem is. Yeah. Um, and if you get enough of those people talking, you'll get a fa- yeah. you'll get a nice pattern from it instead of sitting in your ivory tower, making a decision based on what you read on the Harvard Business Review or a Wall Street Journal or whatever the magazine out there is. That's true. And you mentioned the, the key phrase, psychological safety, and that's a big piece. So after we discern what the executives want in terms of objectives, before we do the bottom up work, we don't stop there. We then come up with a whole set of design principles to manage the change. And we use a lot of um, that, that term came from Google's project Aristotle, right? Which people always quote psychological safety and trust and room to explore. And that was the first tenet of high performance teams in um, project Aristotle. But people are also hungry for the third and fourth tenets, which is meaning through my organization and purpose through my work. So we make sure that those tenets are embedded in the design principles that get the executive sign off. So they're willing and prepared and capable of going on that journey then. Very, very impressive, very impressive. Now, one thing that you mentioned that I find very fascinating and I don't really understand this, so maybe you can help explain. uh, The role of innovation as a Trojan horse for purpose. What do you really mean by that? And can you explain how it actually looks in real life? Right, so first you have to define innovation. Innovation is not product development right? Um, They may develop products, they may develop services, they may develop solutions, experiences, new business models. But um, if you think about innovation as being the way you risk-proof a firm or an organization by coming up with a portfolio of market-tested option value concepts. Um, But the way they do that, again, is by listening to real people and starting most of the major innovation methodologies start with either deep listening or empathy. And so they start to do that with the market. Then they start to do that inside their company. And so they're practicing all the tenets of what we'll call a growth mindset, of what we'll call a human-centered firm. Um, And they're often the only department. Everybody's 
else is acting like it's Jack Welch's GE, right, inside the organization. But they become what I call the new cells in the dying body of the corpus. And they are exhibiting what can happen with people who are using these types of methodologies inside an organization. So as a Trojan horse, you're seeing all these people who are radically collaborating, who are uh, have a bias toward action, who all the all the mindsets that are typical inside innovation that are often in, in a highly executable uh, corporation. You don't see that swath of exploration and that sort of deep discernment and deep listening that they get paid for. You should because there's a lot of great value uh, creation. So a lot of companies that we work with who sign up for purposeful transformations start with the little pink spoon at Baskin Robbins is their innovation department or an innovation program. And that's where they start to learn the value of empathy, the value of listening deeply, of figuring out the wants, needs, and desires. First, the Trojan horse, horse part is first out in the market maybe with their suppliers, maybe with their end users, maybe with their customers, maybe with distributors. But then you turn that inside the organization, those same tools, and you figure out the wants, needs, and desires of everybody who works there. And you're able to then marry that up, true that up with a lot of the tenets of um, Project Aristotle and other things and begin to align and change the organization. So that's what I mean by Trojan Horse. So how... So how many organizations, if you were to guess out of 10, are actually taking this approach? Because this, I feel like, requires radical transparency um, and, yes. and accountability from the top as well to be transparent and be real. So what do you, like, what are you actually seeing in terms of the actual, you know, take on this? Something A lot more. So, so let me give you one data point and then I'll talk anecdotally. Um, before the pandemic, um, there's a, there's a certain governance called a B Corp, a beneficiary corporation, right? Which is a way to set up a triple bottom line and, and be governed to be one of these types of companies. But before the pandemic, there were less than 2000 applicants. And during the pandemic, um, when everybody was leaving their jobs and not finding purpose in work, it went up to more than 5,000 inquiries. Um, and five, there are now 5,000 B Corps in something like 55 countries. Um, my data is not accurate, but close there. Um, um, and so there's a great appetite and hunger for meaning and purpose. And people see the value of being a purpose-led organization. It's still the minority of companies. Um, it takes an enlightened leader to understand that value and then not only understand that value, but have the willingness and capability to be that transparent and vulnerable and take their organization on a journey. They also have to get their board's trust that it's going to pay off, right? But there are more and more benchmarks. So we're now where we have the early adopters who are doing it and then starting to set the example for the others. But we have not tipped into where that's half of the kind. I'd say it's two to three percent of most firms with about five to seven percent kicking the tires for it yeah are you seeing a lot of that in a certain geography uh or maybe in north america more than europe or can you talk a little bit about where well, i mentioned all the countries where b corps now are, and uh, there, there's a great appetite in europe i see it more segment by segment 
So um, really consumer goods and food and beverage are moving to it as quickly as possible. So Danone and Danone North America and Danone France are B Corps, they rechartered. Um, Unilever now is one as well, which is a really interesting story. And that's interesting because they were acquiring a lot of small companies in the natural and organic food categories and who were B Corps. And they noticed that the B Corps were radically outperforming all of their traditional profit motive only companies. And so once they saw enough evidence there, they said, what, what can we do? I would also recommend their, their, their former CEO, um, Paul Pullman, wrote a book called Net Positive about this revolution, about this purpose of people-centered revolution in business right now that I would highly recommend. Huh. Perfect. Perfect. Well, um, so what advice would you give to organization leaders now who are struggling with, and I know it's probably a little bit off topic, but, you know, struggling with figuring out uh, with the layoffs and, uh, you know, structuring their company again for this downturn that we might see in the next few months. And how does that all tie into this approach? Be compassionate, be holistic. Think about first the consequences, but then don't react there. Think about the meaning then. And then before you start to restructure just because you need to cut a certain number of heads, articulate your purpose as you're downsizing. Then think about your strategy and your structure simultaneously. Then think about the cuts that you need to do just to live into that strategy. But if you start with the cuts and the cost reduction, you're not treating people as people. You're treating people as numbers on a spreadsheet. Yeah, yeah. Start with purpose and meaning. Well, thanks a lot, uh, Michael. It's been really insightful. I wish we could continue talking. Uh, the last thing I would ask you is maybe, you know, uh, uh, give something about how do people reach you and uh, how, how you help uh, organizations, uh, big and small, uh, any specific uh you know, tips you would give. Well, thank you. So Epic Pivot is 15 years old. We work all over the world. We help companies with purposeful transformation and also to set up innovation and insights programs. Um, you can find us at epicpivot.com and please find me, Michael Graber on LinkedIn and LinkedIn with me. I publish frequently and speak frequently and a lot of that is reposted there, but I would welcome any, any contact. Excellent. Well, thanks again, Michael. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Shri Chalapa here. Thank you so much for listening to the People Strategy Leaders Podcast. If you are a successful leader or a people strategist who would like to be on this program, please visit engagedly.com slash people strategy leaders podcast. If you got something out of this interview, would you share this episode on social media? If you know someone that would be a great guest, tag them on social media to let them know about the show and include the hashtag people strategy leaders. I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. We are regularly putting out new episodes and content to make sure you don't miss any episodes. Go ahead and subscribe your thumbs up ratings and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. Want to know more? Follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Sri Chalapa. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time. And thank you to Patrick Ramsey, sound engineer at Kalinga Production Studios for recording and mixing this show.